Welcome to McKinsey Talks Talent, featuring McKinsey leaders and talent experts Brian Hancock and Bill Shanninger. I'm Lucia Rahili. Another thing to turn on its head is this concept that being a middle manager is a bad thing. I was talking to someone last week at a tech company who declared, as I was telling the person about the book, oh, I'm out of middle management. I'm really glad. That's McKinsey partner Emily Field. She joins Brian, Bill, and me to talk about their new book, Power to the Middle, which reframes middle management as vital to helping companies thrive. Bill, Brian, welcome back. It's great to be back. Great to be back. And Emily, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. So let's start by briefly recapping the fundamental premise of your new book, Power to the Middle, starting with the case for middle managers. We often hear middle managers, if not actually maligned, then at least mocked, particularly in pop culture. So tell us a little bit about what it means to be a middle manager in this sort of cultural mythology of work. So let's be honest, managers have a bad rap. And when you think about it, right, the definition of a middle manager, there's people above them, people below them. But what we know is that managers are the single biggest determinant of employee satisfaction, of performance, of perceptions of well-being. These managers matter, and we haven't set them up to succeed. Where do you think this middle management stereotype originated, and is there any truth to it? I think it really started in the 90s. I mean, if you think back to, you know, the career man or occasionally career woman of the, you know, 50s and 60s and 70s, you know, it was a point of pride to be in the same company for a number of years. And most of those people stayed in middle management roles over that time. They were seen as the key people to communicate down from the top, make sure things were done uh, through the rest of the organization. But by the time you got the Internet in the early 90s, people were saying, wait, we don't need a layer between us to communicate. We can communicate directly. So forgetting about the coaching, forgetting about the setting of direction, forgetting about the core things that managers do day to day, they say, hey, we don't need them for this communication role. And maybe now these folks are helping us to over communicate. I apologize in advance for the frogginess. I'm just thinking from post-war U.S., the point at which we were unchecked on an industrial base and really fueling the growth for everywhere else, you just needed scale. You needed the ability to project leadership's thinking. You know, Sloan, the guy who grew GM so large, the Sloan idea around business units was a replicable model. Everything was set up the same way. It's taken straight from the military and all based from this idea that it was a machine and the people made decisions at the top, the people through the middle passed those decisions onward and it got to the people who, at the bottom who did the work. That went largely unchecked through the late 70s and the 80s. Then you started seeing things like Bethlehem Steel going by the wayside. The whole point was it started out first not as an indictment of middle managers. It started out as that model became way too expensive for most American companies to support. But then when it came time to how do we reshape these things, how do we make them faster, you don't actually need seven layers of people to repeat the same message. And so that was that was out of left field move. For in that era, people who thought it was cradle-to-grave employment, if I just survive here and do well, I'll be an esteemed member of the community because I'm a middle manager at Alcoa. And that was the start of it, right there, mid-80s into the 90s, when it was a fundamentally different view of that layer of management. From a cost-cutting perspective, middle managers have been besieged now for decades. Obviously, we're currently navigating a pretty uncertain stretch in the macroeconomic 
landscape. Why focus on the middle manager now? What is at stake at this particular juncture? So at the same time as technology allows us to commute everyone everywhere all the time, you desperately need someone to help the individual employee figure it out. Particularly when we've had two years of those individual employees probably feeling like and behaving more like vendors and my me as a part of a part of a we. What I'm most worried about is as we think about the next evolution of technologies, the next evolution of productivity, I think organizations are having a choice as to what to do with middle managers. Do we make them take on more and more administrative work, more and more individual contributor work, and take them away from their people leadership? Or do we reinvest their time into the things that we know matter most? I mean, one of the things that happened in the Great recession is you see one of the professions that started to decline and never really bounced back was administrative assistance. And you look in our research and you see that administrative work is now a quarter of what middle managers do. The assistance work didn't necessarily go away. It went to the manager. And so as we think about the next level of reorganizations, the next level of companies getting more productive, you need to make sure that we are creating more time for managers to manage, not less, as we look at productivity going forward. What about the many, many managers who have both so-called player and coach responsibilities? just feels like in today's environment, there are so many leaders asking folks to do more with less. Is it even feasible for those player, coach, middle managers to focus on being a coach? Not without help. I think without redefining the role, that's unlikely to happen. There would have been a period of time where the person sat like kind of outside your office who looked after you. I remember when someone took over my expenses and was like, oh, my God, this is wonderful. I think Emily probably carries a dramatically higher burden of things to be done as a new partner than I would have ever been asked to 15 years ago. But it doesn't mean that she's not working also harder on studies than I was 15 years ago. It's just this weird thing where we keep piling it on because the people are better or they're willing to work harder. So I mean, I think we've set up Mission Impossible and without saying pause redefine the role and let's take some of this out. I don't know how it gets done. And on redefining the role, let me give you an example of a bank. They actually looked at the role of the manager. They knew it had become absolutely unwieldy. And what they found was just by virtue of having a direct report, every people manager had 105 tasks that they had to do. Some of these tasks are things that you'd say, yeah, manager absolutely has to do, like performance reviews, coaching. But there were other things like simple approvals of a credit card or an expense report, which actually is best done by automation. Then they said, what can be automated? What can just simply be eliminated? Maybe was needed for a period of time or a season, but is no longer required. And then what can be pushed down or self-served? And when it came down to it, there were very few things that really a manager needed to do. And then it freed that manager up from administrivia, right, to then be able to focus on the value they do add, coaching, motivating their people, delivering on the strategy. So that's a really good example of both how leaders have not set up managers to succeed and how they can make a shift in order to enable a better use of their time. We know that the high value time would be more time on talent. For some people in these roles, though, The administrivia is a wonderful reason Mm -hmm. to not be doing stuff that might be really scary, like filling out a form while tedious takes time away from the coaching you have to have with the three employees who are a little problematic. 
five, six years ago, there were a wave of organizations going through time management training. And one of the things that was commonly taught was limit the size of the container. So if you are getting lots and lots of people reaching out to you, block only three hours every other week and make it in 15-minute increments. I mean, they were being actually coached into, hey, if you're feeling overwhelmed by all the administrivia, actually what you should do is you should put a limit on all that people stuff. And we think it should be exactly the inverse. If you're putting contain, you know, the size of the container on, put it on the administrivia. Let's refocus that time on the most important thing, which is our people. Let's get a little bit more specific about what the three of you see as the potential for middle managers to play a vital role. What could and should they be doing and where should their role really add value? If you really focus on two areas, there's the strategy side of their job and then there's the people and coaching side of their job. On the strategy side, it's really about setting the direction, determining how the work is going to get done, and holding people accountable for delivering it. This is about thinking through problem solving. This is about challenging people to achieve more than they thought possible. On the people side of things, we want managers to be talent magnets, right? We want people to want to work with them. We also want them to be these impact multipliers. And importantly, we want them to be inclusive leaders, focused on creating diverse teams that really focus on well-being of their teams and supporting their people. So when I think about any distributed network, think about a set of schools or think about a set of retail stores or think about a set of factories, often principals or people who are leading the factory site, you know, those are middle managers. They're somewhere between the top of the hierarchy and the front line. They're translating, sense-making, doing all the things that Emily talked about, but imagine a world where their career progression isn't going to the next biggest factory or the next biggest store or the next biggest school. What do we put our best managers in our hardest situations? And that may not be the biggest retail store. That may actually be a mid-sized store that has the potential to be big. If we then think about managers in that way, I think we're going to actually start to not just have managers make the biggest difference in organizations, but we're also going to flip the script a little bit on what it really means to be a manager. You know, I was talking to my favorite client, and we were really reflecting on the idea that when she was responsible for all these big refineries, you know, the company she was in really viewed it as the way you got to be a global vice president was getting out of directly running a refinery. Yet for them... They had these six or seven world-scale plants. It made no sense to ever move them out of that. Why not park your best middle manager where you have real risk? If you have a legacy nuclear business, there's no upside in growth. There's increasing downside in risk as the equipment gets older. So why not park your best managers there? That, to me, I think is one of the ones that has to be turned on its head. Another thing to turn on its head is this concept that being a middle manager is a bad thing. I was talking to someone last week at a tech company who declared, as I was telling the person about the book, oh, I'm out of middle management. I'm really glad. I said, are you a CEO? Are you a president of a business unit? How in the world are you out of middle management? And when we sort of unpacked it deeper, she was squarely in the middle. And I had to say to her, my name's Emily. I'm a middle manager, too. <laughs> it's okay, right? It's almost like we need to go to, like, Middle Managers Anonymous to get okay with this concept. That That's not a bad word. That's actually a great place to be. You're in the action, and you can make it happen. If you're looking into the secret soul of most employees, 
the stuff of dreams is not middle management, right? So how do incentives need to change or how does the framing need to change to persuade folks to give that middle management track a longer term shot? I think it is actually the stuff of dreams. When you have the deep conversation with really good managers, they love what they do. They're like, hey, look, I have a choice. I can be here. I can coach my team. I can see how these people are developing. I can advocate to make sure that we get the right resources. I can be the connector. I can be absolutely in the middle of everything. And they look forward and they're like, if I graduate from this role, what do I do? I can be somebody who's in meetings 24-7 away from actually coaching people. People conflate a little bit, hey, I want to advance in prestige versus what they actually want to do in their life. We've created a society where it is very, very challenging for when somebody comes up and says, hey, I want to, I want to promote you out of management. It's very hard for them to say. And an impatient no, no, society, no. you know. Yeah. I mean, we've created these expectations of forward movement that I think make it difficult. I mean, I know my own, my own McKinsey career, the, the role of engagement manager was by far the best job I've had at the firm because the team needed me the most. I was directly involved in there and they're getting better at the job. The client, I knew more about the client's problem than anyone, especially the partners, and the partners needed me to make sure that they could sound smart in the meetings. You were absolutely central to everything, and everyone needed you. I love that more than any job I've had since. But I was committed to more money and more power, right, which meant I had to leave that job. But, I mean, I, I think about where middle managers are the most paid, and it's in sports. Your head coach is a middle manager. Yeah. If you take a basketball coach, that person is responsible for a team of 12 to 15 people, responsible for making them the best they can be. Sure, has some assistant coaches, but they've got a front office that they report to. They've got a head of basketball operations. They've got other people that they actually report to. It, they are often the head coaches, some of the most highly paid non-players in professional setting and college, the most well-paid paid significantly more than athletic directors or, in some cases, even university presidents. So we have it in a world in sports where, you know, you don't have a lot of head coaches saying, I can't wait to get to the front office. They get to develop their people. Let's be honest, right? We actually have not set up the manager role mm -hmm. now more than ever to do that, right? We're putting more and more on managers' plates. They're figuring out how to convince people to come back to the office because of a top-down edict. They are being responsible for people's mental health and well-being, which they are not trained nor equipped to do. And they're being asked to do more with less, especially amidst layoffs. And so it's a really nice rosy picture when it's at its best, right? It is an incredible role. You get energized. You want to do it. But we need to actually fundamentally redesign the role and, importantly, redesign the roles above these managers who are part of the problem, who are not coaching, developing their people. I was having a conversation uh, yesterday with a professor at Stanford, and we were talking about whether we were optimistic or pessimistic about new technologies and, and what they're able to do to increase productivity and its effect on workers. And we focus on the middle managers. And then the question was, in the next wave of technologies that come, whether it's Gen AI or other things that have the potential to take tasks off your plate, what are we going to do with that extra time? Are we going to all of a sudden say, you used to have eight people report to you, and now with technology, you can have 16. 
And so you're reinvesting that and actually getting more and more scale, but not spending more time coaching. That's a bit of the pessimistic view. Or are we actually going to have a moment where we say, hey, wait a minute, with this new productivity, I can do what matters more, which is actually freeing up my time to spend more time with people. We hope that the next wave of technology actually frees up managers. The idea of manager co-pilots gives them more time to be more effective leaders. But I think we recognize the risk that, hey, it's possible that we actually, unguided, end up in a world where managers spend even less time as a percentage per employee on coaching. Right. What would be an example of something that would have to change in order for this vision that you've just presented to be materialized? I think what's important, though, is when we're talking about somebody staying in middle management, we're not saying that the person's going to do the same thing year over year. And I think that's an important distinction. You can grow within your role, right? If you think about it, instead of up or out, think about this as a set of tour of duties across middle manager positions where the person can have impact broadly. And will there be like a bypass track where folks can advance in parallel to the middle management position without having to undertake middle management responsibilities in the traditional way? Yes. I mean, I, I would I would think about it as what if we thought of our knowledge workers in the same way we think about skilled tradespeople. And so instead of having a master electrician, have a master manager. Like being a great manager is equivalent to being really excellent at your trade. And so let's actually think yeah. about recognizing that, putting you in harder situations, giving you more responsibility and more pay as you progress as a manager. At the same time, if you're great on the technical track and you're outstanding scientists, Let's not make you manage people if that's not your thing. There are lots of scientific organizations, among others, where there are people that are promoted not because they have good management potential. It's because they were really good at the technical thing they did. So I think if we're more explicit about, hey, let's create master tracks for the technical areas. Let's create master tracks for managers. And sure, you may have a general management track that actually goes through and progresses in a traditional way. But I think we've got to have more pathways for people to do what they're excellent in. So most folks are promoted to the middle management role on the back of individual outperformance. So how do you identify upfront the folks who will actually thrive in role versus, you know, folks who won't? How do you select for those two tracks? Behavioral interviews. Observation, use of projects, special projects, tasks in role. I mean, the first time someone does something shouldn't be after they already gotten the job. You know, you need training wheels. Training wheels are special projects, right? You, you, you'll park them with somebody who's really good at it. If you think about what we do with, you know, young associates, we give them a summer intern to look after. It just helps structure their work, help get them set up for this problem-solving meeting. They're small micro behaviors that you can already get them practicing. On some, It comes naturally to someone more junior, and then you just start building on that. So I, I, I do think there are chances here. And I also think it's a little bit of a fallacy to say that People haven't managed if they haven't managed within your organization. People in college, people on a sports team that were a captain of their team, they were actually managing. They were the ones leading the uh, off-season workouts. They're the ones organizing and motivating the team, people that founded a club, people that were leading a club. I mean, there are lots of markers 
of, you know, whether it's in high school, whether it's in college, where you've worked in a team, where you've had some leadership responsibility. And then in the interviews, you can be asked to describe, hey, how was it that you actually led this? How do you do this? And so there are ways that you can actually look back over someone's life and said, hey, was this person an individual contributor from day one, an excellent solo pianist? Or is this somebody that was, you know, orchestrating the club lacrosse team and, you know, fundraising, all of that stuff, very different profiles. And based on the interviews, you could have a informed view on whether or not they'd be good. The other piece we're missing, which is, does the person like it, right? In the world of multiple tracks, right, the world that Brian's painting, you actually then give people autonomy, agency to choose their own adventure. What gives them energy? How do they connect their purpose? I was talking to a chief technology officer who said my biggest regret toward the end of his career was putting great data scientists, great technologists into people manager roles. He was trying to quantify the amount of value he lost by taking them out of what gave them energy. And I think what we've lost, too, in this world where the only way is up, right, to management uh, and then to get out of it as quickly as possible is what do you love to do? What gives you energy? And if it's people management, there should be a track for you. If it's being an individual contributor, being a knowledge worker, there's a track for you. And somehow we've lost that along the way. Great point. Lucia, one more thing on this. If you would just dial it back a little bit and allow a little slack in the system, people can go on vacation and not be bothered. They can go to training. And, you know, God forbid, they could do more of the stuff that they really want to do and be great at it. I think there's one practical thing I've seen a few companies do that I thought was interesting in creating the slack in the system, which was a no meeting Wednesday. And so part of what they're doing is say, look, we can't fix all of the bureaucracy, but what we can do is at least stop meetings on this day to create a little bit of space so that we can think a little bit of space so that we can then have the informal check-ins to actually lead our people and not just be present back to back to back in meetings that some people would say are of questionable value. Emily, given the reality of gender dynamics in the contemporary workplace, do you see a risk that women will end up disproportionately occupying that middle tier, given that we're talking about a very people-oriented role and that women tend to be perceived as having strong soft skills and better EQ, being more sportsmanlike, as someone recently said to me. I mean, if we could get more women to middle management, we would be in a better position, right? Because what we know is there's actually two broken rungs. One, getting them to management, the first manager level, and then two, advancing them. Mm -hmm. But if I could get more women to manager positions, then uh, right. that would be you know step, step one in really solving gender equity. The talent gap is like a big thing, right? How do middle managers enable bridging of the talent gap and moving from transactions to interactions? What's the effect of that? The great manager is a coach, not a taskmaster, right? And so they're really helping connect people's work to their purpose. They're thinking about their specific goals and what their objectives are and how the work all fits in. The value at stake is huge. When we just compare like top quartile companies to uh, middle quartile companies relative to their health, there's a three times increase in total return to shareholder value 
when we look at companies with healthy management practices. These are things like fostering creativity and innovation. These are basic things like being a supportive leader, being a manager who consults their employees on matters that are relevant to them. These are basic things that help you move from this concept of being transactional to really being about the interaction. As I think some of you all know, I'm a lawyer by training. So early in my career, that got me engaged with serving some law firms. And one firm in particular was having a little bit of challenge in how it was engaging and motivating the associates. And we were having some interviews with some of the partners. They referred to the associates as FBUs, fungible billing units. (laughs) And when you have managers thinking of these as FBUs, and I need an FBU to do this, and I need an FBU to do that, and you're measuring the FBUs based on the output per FBU, that's a problem. And then you, then they were asking the question like, well, why, if we're this in the prestige, right, do we have trouble attracting people on campus? It's because people know there are other places where you can go to see how new joiners, others in the organization feel, and it's going to be hard to get people to come. But now multiply that through the economy. How many organizations think of their workers as their equivalent of FBUs, and how many of them think, hey, actually... These are valued people that I want to help succeed. People know it. I mean, that one of the top factors we saw in our great attrition, great attraction research of why people stay or go is where they felt valued by their manager. How valued would you feel if you're an FBU? So the three of you get into more detail in your book, Power to the Middle. We unfortunately can't get into all of them here, but give us, before we close, your favorite example of what it looks like when a manager successfully makes that move right into the beating heart of the organization versus sort of just slouching towards the vanishing point of retirement. So let me tell you about two managers in the exact same organization. The return to office edict came. People needed to return to the office. One manager said, everybody back to the office five days a week. And his team was so literal that they said things like, well, I'm in the field with customers. What does that mean? And the manager said, let let me check. Another manager, same team, similar remit, said, be with your customers. That's how you're having value. And two, let's think about this as the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. Let's do good work. Let's think about the right times to come together. Same team, right? Think about who you want to work with, right? I'd want to work with the manager that's actually saying, let's do the work together, let's have impact, and let's not worry so much about exactly where we are. Yeah, I mean, one of the best examples for me comes from a healthcare setting. So this is in home health. And they think of themselves as a group of social entrepreneurs that are helping their clients, helping their patients be at home. And they see their mission as helping reach more and more people in the home. And they talk about the value that is, what a calling that is. When they talk about their business, they don't think of it as a business. They think of it as a social mission. And this is what we're off to do. Like, they have inspiration through the roof. And you know what? People will go through walls to help those patients, 
to help those clients. And they're doing it not in a way of, you know, getting on every single day, like an abstract view of the metrics or an abstract view of something in the organization. And so obviously in every organization, you need a balance of inspiration and actually making sure things work. But I think all organizations would be well served to take a step back and say, hey, do I have that balance? Because I think in many organizations, the balance is more towards the process, the numbers, whatever, and a little bit less the mission that makes people excited and willing to you know, literally go through walls to make things happen. Emily, Brian, Bill, thanks so much for being with us today. It's great being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Emily. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Lucia Rahilly with Brian Hancock and Bill Shanninger. Subscribe to McKinsey Talks Talent wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have questions for Brian and Bill, write to us at McKinseyTalksTalent at McKinsey.com. We'd love to hear from you, and we may answer your question on the show. Be well.